The Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagamalark. And I am Thumbs. Thumbs, it is so good to have you back. This last episode I did by myself was, I mean, I did it, and uh, it was fun, and I'm glad we did it, but uh, I, uh, I missed you. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. I'm sure you did great. I definitely enjoy when we bounce off each other more than any time I've tried to record something that's just me. Yeah, this, this episode's going to be coming out at the end of the month, but we're actually recording it like three days after I recorded the Of Wrath and Brotherhood episode. So for us, this is happening very close together. But for you guys, it's going to be, you're going to be like, wait a second, how did he not listen to it at this point? It's been like two weeks. What's he been doing? Yeah, it dropped last weeks? night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll totally listen to it. But I'm right in the middle of an audiobook, And I'm like, God, I just... If I don't want to get distracted between the two things. I'm a reader, dude. I, I, I get it. You don't want to disrupt the flow. Like if I'm reading a really good book and somebody's like, do you want to watch a new show with me? I'm like, not right now, dude. I got this book in my head and I don't yeah. want it to, to flee from me. Talk to me in a day or two. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. This one's also kind of fun because this is the first time I've seen you in like a month. Like seen, we're not in the same room, but we've set up a... Uh, a video chat so i'm actually kind of looking at your face while recording which we haven't had the last couple episodes now we have no way of proving that to you guys yet because we are both luddites and have not figured out this whole youtube thing yet um but we're still in our first year so I, i'm thinking year two you can start to to maybe uh, expect to see some some youtube action but for now we are uh subtly mastering the art of of integrating ourselves with these machines. So uh, bear with us as we uh, achieve our symbiosis. Are we at six months yet? You I are. Think I don't so. think I we am st- yet. We st- I, I, the show started back in October. Um, so yeah, we would have just passed six months, I think. Right? And no. then I joined, I think, full-time in December. We're good ish, at this. Ish. Doesn't matter too much, but <laughs> I've just been that. thinking about this. Uh, so speak, speaking of like milestones and landmarks, um, I was looking at the metrics the other day and I saw that we had listeners in Japan and Australia that I hadn't seen before. So hello to y'all on, uh, on that side of the Pacific. Good to, good to have you listening. That's amazing. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I like where I was, I was just talking about on the last episode. Uh, it's, it's hard at the moment to get your wargaming fix, but we do what we can. I had mentioned in the last episode, this game Ancestors Legacy, but I didn't go into too much detail. Um, it's pretty cool. It's, it's set in kind of middle ages Europe and it consists of these four different groups. You've got the Anglo-Saxons, the Slavs, the Vikings, and the Germans, or the, the Holy Roman Empire, which is significant to what we're talking about today. And uh, it, it basically, if you've ever played Age of Empires, it's very similar to that. You have your camp, and you build up your buildings, which allow you to get new units, and you use those units to move out and, and get new areas that get you more resources that eventually, you, and, and this whole time you're maneuvering against your opponent. Um, is pretty fun. It's pretty fun if, if you're kind of obsessed with that. And it's, it's a nice uh, substitute for Warhammer 40k at the moment. And because it's got swords, I think it appeals to those Bellagrim that are also inclined toward an RTS. An RTS on, a, on an Xbox. 
Go figure. It's cool. Yeah. RTSs, I've always enjoyed. I've never got super into them, but they're a real fun game system. Um, I'm actually going to be getting my own. I'm going to re- be replacing my computer soon. Nice. Partly so I can do more of this stuff. And I haven't had a computer I could game on in years. So I'm like, oh, I'm totally going to do it for, you know, the practical reasons of podcasting and doing some of my own editing and stuff like that. But part of me is super going to install Dawn of War, the like Warhammer RTS onto this. And if you don't get Battlefleet Gothic, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry thumbs. Uh, I have been, I, I want that game so bad and I have to wait until I get a computer that can play it. But I know I've, I've broken down on the show before about it, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's a Warhammer 40 K space naval battle, uh, a game where you've got your, like your different space navies that are going against each other. That was the game I was always the most tempted by when they still ran a Battlefleet Gothic tabletop. I don't know if they still do, but. I keep emailing Games Workshop, telling them that if they if they bring it back, and, and Games Workshop, if you guys have anybody listening to this podcast by any for any reason, uh, if you bring back Battlefleet Gothic, I will take out a second mortgage. I mean, I don't even have a house yet, <laughs> but I will take out a second mortgage on another house in order to, to like just buy everything for Battlefleet Gothic. I would love that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, Ancestors Legacy is pretty sweet. Uh, I would recommend checking it out if you've got an Xbox. I'm enjoying it. Um, and then uh, other than that, I think I finally convinced my wife to play Kill Team with me. Um, maybe, fingers crossed, I got to get this Kill Team board finally built. But now that she's told me she will, I've, I've got a reason to, to, you know, motivation behind it. Yeah, I'm sure she's watching you crawl up the walls without any kind of wargaming going on. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, she she is too, but like she's also, she's working. She's one of those essential workers. Oh, like me. Yeah, like you guys uh, get to go out and brave the the world right now and uh and so she's still living her life the way it pretty much normally was she really likes her co-workers she really likes her boss so going into work is is pretty much like going and hanging out with friends for her for the most part especially since people aren't really coming into the lobby at this point um so yeah yeah i i mean it's still stressful but like she likes her life i i haven't seen anybody outside of this house in weeks yeah, it's been about a month at this point. Except for my chiropractor. Ooh, I'm seeing mine tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. Ugh. It might be junk science, but I feel so much better afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> we get by in the ways that we can. And so like yeah. but uh and so I'm sitting here exercising the strategic portions of my uh of my need to express the war gaming, but Thumbs is taking it in the other direction and is actually being practical with his downtime. I have not had access to a lot of wargaming stuff like i a fighter lives in the house with me but the weather has been awful outside and as we've talked about i don't really have any big tactical video games um i've had a little bit of fire emblem but i haven't really had the time to play it because it turns out doing nothing during a pandemic takes a lot of emotional energy you know, I've been, I've been tired too. I basically just been working and sleeping, like, yeah. I, I, like just working on the podcast and then, and then sleeping when I'm not working on the podcast. I, yeah, it's, it's. Yeah. Same here. I, uh, but on my weekends, I've been doing a whole lot of crafting, primarily armor crafting. I've been re- making a new set of armor that doesn't cover. I am sacrificing coverage, but I am gaining mobility out of it. Uh, it will cover the arms pretty well, my legs will be pretty well covered, and the top half of my torso will be covered, but the belly kidney area will be open. 
I will have much more maneuverability, but I will have to watch that area a lot closer. I mean, that's always the, the trade-off. You, you either lock up your mobility for better defense or you're sacrificing a little bit of defense for better mobility. Um, yeah, I, I feel you there. Uh, and it might end up being something I end up modifying, but the kind of fun thing that I've been doing with this project is I am only using leather from old armor that has fallen apart. Because, like, I made my first armor kit, the the one I made before I made your armor, and it the the concept was well, but I just had never leather, leather crafted before, so it ended up eventually just kind of falling apart. So I've been taking the pieces left over from that and recycling it so it looks brand new. It I've retooled it, I've repainted it, I took parts off to uh, give me the more range and stuff, and I am going to try it out and see how it works. And if it doesn't, if it works, great. And if it doesn't, I can always modify it or even just retire it and make it a showpiece because I've, I I got to work with this concept without spending a ton more money, which is always the hardest part of wargaming. And it's also nice to have the time to be able to work on prototypes and not feel the pressure to make, make sure that it's perfect every time. Like you actually have a little bit of, of leeway at the moment to do some experimenting and, uh, and, and figure out a pattern that works before you have to put into a practical implementation. Mm -hmm. But I keep thinking about, especially in Machiavelli, we did those like two chapters in a row about it, about maintenance and equipment and camp life and all of the stuff that we don't think of when it comes to wargaming, but it's still very, very important. We're really good at look at the new toy coming in. I definitely have been looking at new toys coming in, but also not just that, but like making sure what we already have is still going at the top condition that we're keeping it well, well maintained. And that's kind of where I've been with this. I'm going to have to, to re up my, my inventory. I know that I've been kind of checking over my weapons. I, I typically do this time of year. It's, it's springtime. And this is typically a time that I, give my weapons a really, really thorough check because this is the time to get new ones if I'm going to. And, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to replace basically my entire armory whenever the season picks back up because, um, I can't remember the last time I actually got a new weapon. All my stuff has been really high quality and I'm not too terribly rough on it. I'm not a power fighter anymore. I'm, I'm technique. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. Um, but I also don't want to accidentally hurt somebody. So I, I, I yeah, I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to have to reinvest in that. Well, Brightside, you know, someone who smiths a lot. So worst case scenario, we can just fix up your gear. I know so many people who smith. It's, it's a wonderful thing to have so many friends in this community because it's like, Hmm, I need something foam smithed. I wonder who I could possibly call <laughs> to help me with this project. I usually have spare forged foam fries in my shed. I think I still do. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have a few spare foam fries sitting around here someplace. Oh man, it's even easier than I could fix your stuff in an afternoon. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I, as you can hear, you know, Thumbs and I are getting by, but we are very much looking forward to the time when the uh, when, it, when it's safe to be able to gather again and uh, and hang out. But mm -hmm. until then. It's good to be finding projects. We hope that you guys are able to find ways to keep yourselves busy and uh, keep the sanity a little bit uh, during these trying times. But uh, I don't know. I, th I think we've uh, jaw-jacked for long enough, Thumbs. What do you think? Yeah, it's nice to get some catch-up, but I suppose we should uh, talk about what we're actually here for. Like, they love us, but 
they love wargaming more. That's true. That's true. And and so today, again, we're not talking so much about wargaming, but we're going to be framing the next book contextually. So this episode is about the historical context of Frederick the Great's instructions to his generals. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the world in which Frederick kind of came into, Prussia, and what that means, uh, and then who Frederick was, and kind of the, the, the situation in which he wrote this book uh, so that we can understand the words that are coming to us. Because this is, this is one of those books that is, is hailed by military historians as one of the greats. Um, it's one of the must-reads on the list. And it, it was discredited for a very long time because uh, the Nazis claimed Frederick and his works, much like they claimed anything German uh, when they came to power. But if you, it, it, we hope that you will see that Frederick wasn't necessarily what the Nazis claimed him to be. Um, he was kind of a taboo subject for most of, the, most of the 20th century. But, you know, we're kind of realizing that like Nietzsche and like Wagner and like uh, the Vikings, uh, the Nazis just kind of co-opted a bunch of things that weren't, they weren't uh, uh, in the same vein as what they wanted. They just, they changed the narrative. So uh, we're trying to look at it within the actual historical context in which these things existed. Well, and these episodes, these transition episodes are really useful for us as well as hopefully the audience, because a lot of these areas of history are really kind of confusing. Convoluted for sure. Yeah, uh, especially late medieval ages to kind of early modern European history was it, it it's so conflicting and there's so many everything is so intertwined. So our, our last transition episode was actually, I think, one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded. So I was really looking forward to this. And it turned out I knew nothing, nothing <laughs> about Frederick the Great or Prussia and almost nothing about the Holy Roman Empire. Well. Uh, I, I, like you said, it's a good opportunity for us to, to brush up on our history and to get the audience uh, up on theirs so that we, we can all be on the same page for, for talking about this. But I think uh, a good place for us to start would be with the Holy Roman Empire and Prussia. You and I both came up in a very, well, we came up in the American education system, which is a very Britain-centric educa- uh, history lessons for the most part. I mean, there's classes that don't, but the general gist of it. So we learned about like Rome and then the medieval period, which was, uh, which was a lot of Britain versus France kind of stuff. And then we kind of skip forward a little bit about the Renaissance and then into the early modern period. Focusing a lot on Great Britain and her colonies and like how cool all of that was. 
And there's some really interesting parts of history there. So I'm not really saying that's not worth knowing, but we don't really cover the Holy Roman Empire during that time. And I didn't realize how big of a thing it was. I got bits of it when I was reading about Machiavelli, but reading about Frederick and all this here, and I went, oh, wow, this is like most of Europe that wasn't Britain, it seemed like, was pretty tied in with the Holy Roman Empire in some way or another. Absolutely. I mean, like the Holy Roman Empire was a, a binding and driving force of history uh, for, for a very good chunk of, of European history. Like it was, uh, like it later became basically just Austria and friends, but the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Germany and, and all the conglomerate things that it represented. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's complicated, but it was also extremely important. And I think in order to have, to get into that, our, our history teachers would have had to spend like two extra months. Oh Yeah explaining all of that to us and it just didn't fit into the curriculum so we are going to try to give you a really rushed uh, education as to what that might be again neither thumbs or i uh, majored in this particular area of history i am a religious studies major thumbs i was i was a fine arts student that dropped out of college like i am not a historian yeah so um we are doing the best we can. Again, the military science is why we're here. Um, if you are a, a military historian and you're like, man, they glossed over these details. Again, if there's something really important that we missed, please let us know. We'd love to uh, put it into the next episode, but we're just going to try to go over the details that we th think are important uh, to this story. Um, and so real quick, the Holy Roman Empire kind of came into existence around 800 or we say, I say around 800 because it gets harder and harder to tell dates as you go back in history, but okay. Came into existence around 800 uh, with the first Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne. And it was a confederal elective monarchy. It's the first time you kind of see something like this, where the central ruler rules by the mandate of all of the other powers. Um, it's kind of a attempt at a republic idea, question mark? but not quite at the same time. But not quite at the same time. Um, it, but it, it's just kind of a step in the right direction, and it definitely was a way of consolidating power while also letting people maintain their individuality. I think the term emperor gets... People put a little too much emphasis on that. They're like, oh, he's the emperor. It's more of a symbolic term at this point than it was for, like, the Romans, for sure. The Yeah, because when we think of the emperor, we think of like Rome. The Catholic Church wanted basically the stability of the Roman Empire because the Catholic Church had been holding together Europe as best as they could throughout the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and were having troubles with it. So they helped Charlemagne create the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was kind of considered the first among equals in monarchs as opposed to absolute ruler. Right. Right. It wasn't like a, a, div, a divine source. So again, when the Romans talked about their emperor, that was basically a god, um, or or the or the son or the or the offspring of a god in some way. Whereas in this particular case, you saw the divine right of kings, but it was they weren't worshipped, right? When we were trying to figure this out, we placed it somewhere in modern terms as. The Holy Roman Empire was more binding than, say, the United Nations, which is a whole lot of 
goodwill and conversation, but they, there's not a whole lot that the UN can do to like force a country to do something. But less together than, say, the United States, where we're kind of different countries, but we're not different countries. But, you know, we have like one legislative body and one leader through the president that is more powerful than, say, any of the governors. It's in a gray zone between those two things. Again, uh, wrapping inside of there, also the idea of hereditary rule and divide right of kings. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a complicated idea to explain. Um, we only kind of understand it ourselves, if we're being entirely honest here, so. And, and we learn more every time we try to explain it to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of, that, that started and it, it, it just grew and expanded and became more and more powerful. So we're going to fast forward to the first time when the Hohenzollerns, which is the royal house from which the Fredericks and, and the Frederick, the real important one, the great one that we're going to be talking about comes from, this is where they kind of enter the picture. So in 1415, a Hohenzollern burgrave, which is like the, a lord that owns a castle, comes to Brandenburg as an elector. Uh, in 1417, they're recognized as a prime elector by the Holy Roman Empire. So remember we were talking about how the emperor was a first among equals well this was because the prime elector elected them so it was kind of like a legislative body ish uh, as the emperor and so this is the point in which the hohenzollerns were recognized as prime electors so this is significant because they are an official part of the holy roman empire at this point now brandenburg which is where they started. Um, the area around it is ravaged by conflict and poverty uh, for the, the next several decades. And Brandenburg remains largely unscathed because they have a very rich urban middle class that managed to remain productive and prosperous during this time. So by 1440, Brandenburg is starting to have issues because they are recognizing that their neighbors are getting hungry and jealous. There's, there's this huge difference. And so there's this risk of invasion at all times. So they start to absorb their neighbors to prevent their neighbors from doing the same to them. Okay. So this would have been around the time of Machiavelli. So around the time of the last book that we talked about this, not country, but Prussia was being formed. Yeah. Well, it wasn't quite Prussia yet. It was, it was Brandenburg. Uh, So this was still like the Brandenburg city state, uh, kind of idea, and it was growing and absorbing its neighbors. And again, this is kind of the time when Machiavelli was writing. Yep. And so fast forward to around 1618, and the electors of Brandenburg also inherit Prussia. So this is when you start to see the the combination and the inclusion of Prussia, which was a part of like the Polish territories at this time. Um, so that's why the full union wasn't possible, because Brandenburg was was still a part of the Holy Roman Empire, right? And Prussia was still a part of Poland. So even though the Hohenzollerns technically had inherited both of them, they weren't united because they were still owned by separate monarchs. Does that make sense? Kind of, but as much as anything can. An important thing to note during this part is when we think of countries, when we think of like Germany or France, we tend to think of it as one like continuous land base. That was not the case with what Prussia was at the time. It wasn't you know, this single chunk, but it's this chunk here and that chunk on the other side of this country or land or whatever. And that place over there, I rule those three separate territories as one thing. 
Yeah, especially as it begins to grow. And as, like you say, these inheritances and these marriages, negotiations, diplomatic contracts shake out, uh, you start to, yeah, there's, there's, there's little pieces of other countries that you start to see inherited and they're very disparate. Like if you go and look up a, a kind of a map of Prussia at this time, um, yeah, it's all over the place. It, it's yeah. And so that's one of the reasons that over the next hundred years, they really try to expand and kind of bring everything together and, and bring up their profile on that. Cause again, they're surrounded every time they expand and grow, they just get newer and bigger and more dangerous neighbors. And so they're constantly having to, to defend their borders. So, um, there's a couple of things that really kind of come together that, that transform Prussia from being a, a disparate little area to a place that is, is capable of being its own kingdom. The reason it wasn't a kingdom yet was because kingdoms weren't allowed to exist within the Holy Roman Empire. The only kingdom that was allowed was Bohemia. Outside of that, they were all city-states that were kind of a part of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so what changed that for Prussia was first the Second Northern War, um, was a, a good time for them to kind of grab up some more territory. And then through the uh, War of the Hispanic Secession, they chose the right side there and through the Crown Treaty won the right to call themselves a kingdom. They still were not allowed to have a king at this point, mind you. This was the most confusing part when I first started reading yeah. this. <laughs> this was a nice little, little legal loophole uh, because, again, no king was allowed because that was usurping the, the power of the, the Holy Roman Emperor, whatever. Um, and so the way they got around that was they had claimed through a piece of probably legal fiction that they were kings in the place that they had come from, that the Hohenzollerns were kings where they were from. And so by coming there, they were the kings in Prussia. Not the kings of. No. Important distinction, kings in Prussia. So I'm not the king of Prussia. I am a king who is in Prussia, who just so happens to run Prussia. And Brandenburg. And, and Brandenburg. a bunch of other areas too, because <laughs> yeah, it, it's a confusing place and time. Um, and so this, this Prussia Brandenburg kind of area was devastated by the 30 years war and by the bubonic plague. We're talking a third of their population died to the bubonic plague. That's a, that's a lot of people. That's insane to think about. But they make a huge comeback in, in the great Northern war. They choose the right side, which was Russia, and they manage to pick up a bunch of land, including Swedish Pomerania. This effectively doubles everything they have. This doubles their, uh, their, their, their producing power. It's, it's a big deal. And so this puts them into a really good spot. And it's about this time that uh, Frederick starts to come on to the scene. And so at this point, we uh, want to move kind of away from talking about this historic state of Prussia and kind of the world that shaped Frederick. Anything else you want to say about Prussia before we move on? No, I think that's about it. Uh, All right. Yeah. So after this quick musical interlude, we will come back talking about Frederick's early life and his marriage to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Christine. So we've talked about how the relationships of the royals of this era in Europe was kind of incestuous, that a lot of the wars were sort of family feuds because all of the royal families were related to each other in one way or another. 
Especially after a certain point. Yeah, it was impossible to distinguish them. To make it more confusing, they kept naming their children after themselves. So, for example, in this early part, there are three Fredericks in the early part of Frederick's life. There is Frederick I. There is Frederick William, who is Frederick I's son and Frederick the Great's dad. So there's Frederick I, Frederick William, a.k.a. Dad Fred. And then there's Frederick the Great. Which is the, the Freddy we want to talk about tonight. Freddy I was king when Frederick the Great, so Freddy III, was born. He was very excited because Frederick the Th- uh, Great was the third grandson born, but the first one to survive. So there's a lot of pressure. Because remember, childbirth was way more likely to have problems a few hundred years ago. Oh, it was super dangerous. Like, horrifically dangerous. For, for both, for the mother and the child. Mm-hmm. So yes, the, the pressure that was placed on young Frederick from the very get-go must have been rather extraordinary. It didn't help that his dad, Frederick William, Dad Fred, was not the world's nicest man, to put it kindly. No, no, yeah, he was, he was kind of a very awful person. He, he beat uh, Frederick, our Frederick, Frederick II, regularly. Um, he humiliated him often in public. He was a very militaristic man, a very hard man who kind of sought to mold his son into a militaristic man as well. And it just upset him all the more that his son was extremely artistic, uh, was very much into the arts, very much into music, very much into culture. And, and so I, there, there, you can see that, that his father was trying to mold him into a more capable ruler, but he was doing so in a very cruel fashion. Uh, early Frederick was almost entirely obsessed with the arts. He sounds like someone I'd get along with. And one thing that we're just going to get out in the open is it was very clear that Frederick the Great was gay. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, modern historians are, are basically on universal con- consensus on this fact. Uh, which would have been a, it, it wasn't unheard of, but it would have been a big deal in the royal family to have a gay heir to the throne. Because again, we had just talked about hereditary, like hereditary process being so important to this entire, uh, governmental style. Um, that, yeah, it, it was, it was a concern, unfortunately. And so he would have gotten a lot of flack for it, no doubt. Uh, when he was around 16, he had an affair with his father's page, which when you use the word page, that makes that sound super creepy, but he was 16. The boy would have, the, the page would have been about 17. So it's much more age appropriate than that sentence makes it right. sound. There was a very, very real class difference, but not as much of an age difference. Uh, and this page was extremely loyal to Frederick the Great and was giving him information that his that he was learning about Frederick's father, who was, you know, the king. So this was kind of dangerous for Frederick William in some respects. Oh, yeah. No, it was it was it was very dangerous. And he he came down on it even harder. And so this pushed Frederick the Great to become even more rebellious and eventually try to run away. Now, he was caught. Uh, one of the conspirators that tried to to get him out was sentenced uh, to some pretty harsh 
judgments. The other one was executed, even harsher judgment. Um, and so uh, th- th- this left an impression. And Frederick was left uh, engaged to be married. That that was one of basically how how he came out of exile, how he was supposed to get back into any sort of good graces in the kingdom with his father was to be to follow through with this marriage to Elizabeth Christine, uh, who is an extremely influential figure who you've probably never heard of, unfortunately. Uh, before we jump in, William Christine or not William Elizabeth Christine. Sorry, there's been a, there's been a lot of names tonight. <laughs> uh, there's actually one more I'm going to drop here because. Frederick described himself as only ever liking one woman in his life. He described himself as physically disgusted by them. And this woman that he liked was his sister, who was, I want to say, Wilhelmine. Uh, He was very close to her and described he was uh, Frederick the Great was writing to his sister Wilhelmine and described Elizabeth as his relation with Elizabeth as there can be no love or friendship between us. So obviously. This is starting off in a really great position for her. He spent like an hour with her on the wedding night before wandering around all night. So yeah, he wasn't he wasn't very interested in her personally, but he was interested in what she was able to achieve because she was extremely religious and his father was extremely religious. And so the two of them had an instant connection and Frederick wasted no time in exploiting that and in, in kind of using her to get money, uh, travel papers, uh, whatever he might need to kind of function around court. And, and they kind of started this working relationship together, um, that, that continued. She was happy with it. She was very amorous, very much into him. She was devoted is the term that comes up all the time when we're looking her up. Yeah. And, and he, not so much, unfortunately. So this kind of continued until he came into power and, and we're going to talk about uh, his early life in just a second. But I do want to say a few more things about Elizabeth Christine, because even though she was a shy and timid person who was also humble and not very much a self-promoter, she was incredibly important to what Frederick was able to achieve because she was his public face. He hated court life. He hated everything to do with court life. He thought that it gave undue influence to lesser nobles and to people that had no business in, in having influence. And so he wanted to abolish it altogether, but he, he recognized it as being a necessity to running a realm. And so he basically left her in charge. He very rarely showed up and often was in military uniform. And so she was the public face of the realm uh, in, in, in most respects. And especially when he went away to the Seven Years' War, which we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail, um, she ran the country with little or no instructions from him and did so extremely well. And little or no money. And little or no money. Yeah, like uh, she, she was able to accomplish a lot with absolutely, with, with, with very little, with, with very, very little. And, and on top of all that, she was an author and a translator and, and she was incredibly charitable. Again, she was one of those people that put her money where her mouth was and, and gave like half of her allowance away to charity. So she was a very beloved uh, ruler in of her own right, even if she wasn't a bombastic and uh, attention grabbing person that we might think of as a monarch. One of the things I was thinking of while I was reading about her is that here is one of probably the most important women in the history of European royalty. So in the history of Europe, and we've never heard of her. Like I, I had no idea who she was before I started reading about Frederick the Great. Yeah, 
yeah, like I said, I, I had never really heard of her either. And I'm kind of ashamed of that fact because as I've uh, tried to educate myself more on this for this particular episode, um, yeah, she she really stuck out to me. So I, I wish we could we could devote more time to her. Unfortunately, the only biography that I could find on her specifically has not been translated to English from German, or at least I can't find an English translation. Um, so I, I'd like to at some point in the future, because I don't read German. But, uh, but yeah, I, I just thought that we would need to, we definitely needed to talk about her a little bit before we got into more about Frederick. Was there anything else you wanted to, to say before we talk about Fred himself? Uh, mostly just that, like, it, it would have been an utterly impossible for him to do everything that he managed in his life without her doing everything that she did. Yes. Just really drive that home. Yeah, that, uh, that absolutely is true. Um, so yeah, we, we just wanted to make sure we kind of framed who he was before we talk a little bit about how, like how this book was written and where he was and what he was doing while he was doing that. So without further ado, let us introduce you to the man of the hour, Frederick the Great. There are very few people throughout history that end up earning the uh, nomaker the Great. I can only think of a few to come to mind, and Frederick is one of the ones that I, that comes to mind immediately. He's very, even though we don't necessarily know a lot about him in the in the West, and particularly in America. I'm sure those of you who are listening from Germany or France uh, know a lot more about him than Thumbs or I did going into this, but. Uh, for us, the name is extremely common because it's synonymous with military excellence. And it didn't look like he was going to turn out that way. Like we said, in his youth, he seemed to favor the arts over anything as conservative or as stodgy as the military sciences. And after he came to power, he kind of gave a, a, a bad showing. But before we get there, I want to talk about what he came into power to, because his father, as harsh of a man as he was, and as, as hard of a father as he was, he was a good statesman and a good states builder, because Frederick may have inherited a very disconnected realm. Again, if you want to go take a look at a map of this, you'll see little dots all over the place that was technically within their realm. Um, but it was very strong. Uh, because one of the things that his father had instituted was a compulsory system. Around 1717, uh, a compulsory education system had been instituted in Prussia. Now, this was significant. Uh, again, in, in this day and age, we don't necessarily think of this as being that big of a deal. We all go to school until we hit a certain age as mandated by the state. Yeah, that's just the standard. Yeah, this is about the time that that was becoming actually a thing. And, and the same thing with a, uh, a compulsory military service. And so uh, the state that Frederick inherited was one that had been bolstered by strong education and strong military training and recruitment. Uh, one of the numbers that we had been looking up before this, uh, the number of Prussians that entered the military and that were a part of the army at this time, as compared to a place like Great Britain that had a, a global empire, was rather significant. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were, they, like, it, it was a huge difference in, in like the, the ratio of like the population to the people in the army. 
it was something like Prussia had a soldier for every 38 people or something like that. And Britain, which I believe was the next closest, was something like one in 130 people. So it was a lot. It was a lot. I actually have a quote that Frederick wrote about his father when he took the uh, when he took over the kingdom that I thought is very applicable to what you were saying here about his dad being not necessarily a good guy, but a good leader. Uh, quote, what a terrible man he was, but he was just intelligent and skilled in the management of affairs. It was through his efforts, his tireless labor that I was able to accomplish everything that I have since. So Frederick may not have liked the man, but he did recognize his merits for sure. That's one thing I noticed about Frederick throughout this. I don't get the sense that Frederick was a very likable person in general, and I don't think he liked a lot of people. But he seemed to be exceptionally pragmatic in, in, in what he did do and, and how he treated people at the very least. If you were useful, if you were good at something, he would credit you as that. If you had earned a right, you generally got that right. Especially in the case of uh, Elizabeth Christine that we were just talking about. He made sure that even though he didn't necessarily have a, a personal attachment to her, she was respected as queen. Uh, he made sure that, that the realm, even before she earned their love uh, by being such a good monarch, uh, he made sure that they respected her, um, at least as the position, so that she could do her job. So, And part of that was protecting himself. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, oh, I can't have my queen. I can't have my wife disrespected. But also part of that did seem to be like, I am aware that you were stuck in a really bad situation that you did not get to pick. So... At the very least, run my court. You can have this palace. So yeah, he he did treat her well. Um, and he recognized her as being useful at the very least. And he made sure that she had the tools by which to do what she what she could, at least at the very, at the bare minimums. Um, so anyways, he, he inherits this kingdom. And almost immediately, he goes to war. I mean, like, like straight out the gate. Uh, he disputes this, uh, this succession. Uh, within the Holy Roman Empire, and invades uh, Cilicia or Cilicia, uh, and this this conflict, the first of the Cilician Wars, lasts from 1740 to 1742, and this is this is the point where there's this weird turning spot for Frederick, and it's because he flees his first battle, a battle that he wins, like he he leaves command uh, with his field marshal, flees the field right as his army wins. And I mean, he was humiliated. He, he, he took, but he took a lot of lessons from this particular battle and it showed because, uh, he managed to win the rest of the campaign, which was a good thing because this addition, uh, doubled everything. It doubled the economy, doubled the population, doubled the territory. And so this gave him the means to kind of take stock of what had gotten him here, which was uh, like his father, for instance, had focused on a strong infantry force, uh, had kind of neglected the cavalry. So in the time preceding this, he kind of focused a lot more on cavalry training. And this is the point in which he writes the book that we're about to look at. Uh, 1747 was the, the date on this one. Yes, we had to look this one up because it's not listed easily. But we believe that it was written in 1747 because one of the first chapters is listed instructions 1747. So, so this is the point, and you would think that after such a humiliating defeat to start the campaign 
and kind of a, a shaky start to everything else, that this would not be the place to write your magnum opus when it comes to military science. But it turns out that it kind of was, uh, because the second of the Silesian Wars started fairly soon after, and he did his typical Frederick thing. He, he figured that people were about to maneuver on him, and he maneuvered first. And so he struck toward Prague, and managed through a, a series of, of stunning victories to get another favorable suit for peace, in which he expanded his territory. Um, at this point, everybody's starting to notice. Austria is definitely noticing, um, Russia is noticing, and France is noticing. And so they go through what's called the diplomatic revolution, where they all kind of band together and say, we need to do something about these rising powers that are, are threatening us. Um, and at this point, Prussia kind of scoots a little closer to Great Britain, and says, hey, what's going on for you guys? Uh, maybe we can work out something favorable. Yeah, yeah. And this precipitates the Seven Years' War. Now, we've talked about this war before on the show. Uh, for, I mean, for one thing, we covered the Battle of Luthen uh, before, which took place during this particular war. Uh, those of us who live here in the Americas recognize it because it was fought here. If you live in Europe, you'll recognize it because it was fought there. If you live in the Philippines, you'll recognize it because it was fought there. <clears throat> It was one of the first truly global conflicts because it was between the major European powers and their colonies. So it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a huge conflict in which Frederick managed to win against all odds. I mean, I don't want to go into too terribly much detail about this particular conflict, but he had large, mean, well-equipped forces on all sides, all hostile against him, and he managed to fight out an armistice, like a, a kind of a ceasefire situation toward the end of it. Now, he was so kind of sick of war at the end of this that he became a far more peaceful monarch after this. Um, but this conflict really kind of put him on the map and cemented Prussia as a, one of the major world powers, especially one of the major European powers at that time. So we weren't supposed to have this book. Uh, this was supposed to be written in secret. Uh, as the title suggests, it was the instructions for his generals uh, and it was supposed to only be disseminated amongst the highest levels of command. They were supposed to keep it in their private chambers, not take it onto the battlefield. And it was supposed to be destroyed if they thought it was going to come into contact with the enemy. Uh, this was supposed to be a secret manual just for Prussia and its generals. And uh, it, it wasn't supposed to be available to people like us. Thankfully, uh, one of his officials broke this rule. And it fell to enemy powers and was translated. And that is how we came to possess this book. It turns out when you have as many servants as you have, and I don't know if this is specifically what it was, but it was hard to keep secrets in the same kind of way that we would today. When you're like, well, I'm going to keep these papers in my desk. You, clean my desk. And uh, yeah, so the, the privacy wasn't as huge. Uh, and, and in this particular case, uh, an official like took it onto the battlefield and then was captured. And so the the book was taken off of him and then translated that way. So, uh, again, we're thankful because that means that we actually get to go into this book and study it with you and, and kind of what it means to 40k and Belagarth. Uh, yeah. Study what it means to physical and intellectual wargaming. Yeah. So that's, that's largely, I think the framing information that we think you need to have to, to kind of understand the, the world in which this book was written in, uh, Thomas, was there anything else you wanted to add? I was going to say one thing that you should really understand with this, and I I don't say this to in any way make Frederick seem less impressive because he really is one of the greatest generals in history. But he would not have been able to do any of this 
if the Holy Roman Empire hadn't been as weak as it was by this point in history. That's absolutely true. Um, because it would, if, for instance, Frederick Barbarossa was still in charge and had uh, the, the force that he did, uh, Frederick would not have gotten away with this. He would have been squashed. The yeah. Holy Roman Empire itself didn't survive terribly long after this because we covered the battle where the Holy Roman Empire officially dissolved. It was in the Napoleonic Wars, which was the early 19th century. This is mid 18th, mid to late 18th century. So yeah, we're, we're trying to kind of tie it all together. Obviously, all of world history is one big story, and we've been focusing a little bit on, on European history. Last two books have been European. Yeah, after Vegetius, I'd like to, to break out and, and do something a little different. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think that's, uh, that's the world. That is the world of Frederick the Great and the world that this book was kind of composed in. Uh, but before we let you go, if uh, we got anything wrong, if there was information that, you, if that we left out that you felt was important, <clears throat> or if we didn't get a concept quite right, you can always reach us. Uh, uh, drop us an email at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram, uh, The Art of Wargaming. You can also message us there. We, we love to hear from y'all and hear what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. If you want to help out the show, you can give us a like, a five-star review, a share, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, we've got a bunch of other awesome uh, shows that you can listen to a part of the Earworm Network. You can find us on the website at taowargaming.com, or you could just go to the Earworm website, which has us, as well as our sister shows, Fried Squirms and General Nerdery. You can find those at, again, earworm.com, which is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so I, that, that's been our episode, and I think until next time, this has been Yagamalark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. Mm-hmm.